Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon, and the show is The Stories We Live By. And uh, I have not been at my regular time or regular place in making broadcasts for the last couple of weeks because I have made another permanent move from uh, New York area to the Florida area, where I'm talking to you now, um, in a wonderful, warm, hot day with plenty of humidity. Uh, So uh, let me talk today about the story of addiction. And I want to contrast different kinds of stories uh, because one of the most powerful stories that most of us have accepted uh, in our society is that people who drink too much or smoke too much, take illegal drugs, uh, to their detriment, um, people who uh, spend too much time on their computers, people who masturbate too much, have too much sex, who gamble too much, who do all of these things are addicted. And an addiction, we are told in the story of our culture, is a disease. It is a medical problem. Uh, increasingly requiring a medical solution. But not only uh, is this disease a medical problem, but it's an incurable disease. If you have uh, been drinking too much, you are an alcoholic, you have a disease of alcoholism, um, and you have a permanent defect. And again, in recent years, if you've been listening to my show, those of you who have, Uh, or reading my blog at psychtruth.org. You go to Forum and uh, click on the Feds, Fallacies, and Myths little uh, icon. If you are familiar with my ideas, you know uh, that increasingly in recent years, the, the, the story has become that you have a brain problem, a chemical imbalance. Increasingly, you also have a genetic problem, and uh, your genes are forcing you to gamble or to have sex too much or to smoke or I'll focus on uh, drinking too much. And because this is incurable, you're going to need permanent help uh, to get off and stay off these, these problems to control your addiction. You can't cure an addiction. It can only be controlled. And... You can never take another drink or go to the track and make another bet. Uh, You're going to have to abstain. Whatever is the source of the addiction, the focus of your attention, the focus of your obsession, uh, the thing that uh, you do that excludes other things in your life uh, that uh, others or even you consider more important, uh, the thing that you do that causes a health problem, This is going to be a permanent part of your life. This defines your identity. And this is going to go on for the rest of your life. Now, that's the story. And you hear it constantly, over and over and over. And what I want to do is provide an alternative story about why people uh, behave as they do. And I've been discussing different areas of life. But... In this case, why people become, quote, addicted, why they engage 
in behaviors that can be detrimental to themselves and others uh, and, and ruin their lives or ruin their health. And by the way, when I talk about this and provide other explanations, I'm not suggesting for a second that somebody who gets up in the morning and drinks all day until they're comatose and de- de- develop serious liver problems and other health problems, uh, that there's no problem here. All I'm going to do is question the story that's been given us that this is a disease. And as you've heard me say before, uh, there are no medical tests uh, that ever have shown any biological or chemical upset in the brains of individuals that leads them to become addicted. Now, certainly if you ingest certain drugs and alcohol, they work by creating chemical imbalances in the brain, uh, which if you like the effects in one way or another, and I'm going to discuss that at some length, if you like the effects of these uh, chemicals, uh, then um, you continue doing them. Uh, if you don't, you stop doing them. All right? So there is no, no evidence that a chemical imbalance uh, actually creates the need to drink or smoke. There is no real evidence to support the idea that it's genetics. Yes, drinking runs in families, but so is going to college. And uh, since behavior uh, that is uh, wanted or liked or admired is never seen as a problem, um, then your parents and uh, your teachers all take pride in the fact that you went to college and they and you take responsibility for having made the right choice. It's only when we make the wrong choices that someone other than ourselves tends to get blamed for the choice. Now, it used to be if you drank too much, uh, it's because you hang out with the wrong friends. Uh, You know, there was social pressure to do this. But now it's all biological. It's genetic, and there's a brain problem. Okay? Uh, One of the other parts of this story is that some drugs are so dangerous they create instant addiction. I should add this. And uh, the minute you use it, for example, heroin, you will become addicted. Uh, Cocaine, you will become addicted. And this is going to be a lifelong problem. Okay, so I'm going to talk about that in a second. So no tests exist for a disease. Um, The idea that you need help, well, that's also up to question. First of all, you have to understand that the people you see in AA or people you see in clinics or drug programs are those who couldn't do it themselves. This leaves out an enormous segment of people who decide for one reason or another that the behavior they've been engaged in, the drinking, the smoking or whatever, has to change, and they change it in one way or another. Either they stop drinking completely, they stop smoking completely, or they moderate their behavior and Let me tell you the myth that if you've been drinking heavy, one drink leads to another is just that. Millions of people, and I have worked with many over the lifetime of my career, the 40 years of my career, drank like fish at one point in their life. And later on, when they came to an understanding of themselves, what I would call a better understanding of themselves, when their life circumstances were different, 
uh, were able to go out and have a cocktail with dinner or wine with dinner and not abuse it and not do it every day if that was their choice. Okay? So that piece is a myth. The idea that people need help is really comes to question when we talk about cigarette smoking. Now, I was a cigarette smoker. And I'll talk about the, the experience of smoking and what made it so important to me, uh, even though there may have been a physical piece of addiction due to caffeine. I don't question that certain drugs become, you develop a physical dependency. But most of my desire to smoke was psychological. But when I smoked, started smoking in the 1950s, 80% of Americans smoked. And all of a sudden, Massive amounts of information began to come out, even though the cigarette companies did their best. Until this day, they do their best to uh, prevent this information from coming out. Um, they, they, they contested it and hired scientists uh, at high salaries to say that smoking was actually good for you. But the information began to come out, and people in, by the millions stopped smoking. And it wasn't that we, or I in this case, didn't do some suffering when I stopped smoking. Uh, I did. It was an enormous adjustment over a period of maybe six months uh, when I woke up one morning and I was no longer a cigarette smoker who wasn't smoking, but a non-smoker. My definition of myself literally had changed uh, over the period of time in which I didn't smoke and came to different understandings of myself. Um, understandings that, by the way, I was glad I had smoked because I wouldn't have come to understand some of the reasons. I wouldn't have faced them had I not uh, uh, gone through this transformative but difficult process. In other words, a growth process, something that the, the myth of addiction in this country says can't happen, that there can't be this kind of a growth to transform your relationship uh, to the thing that uh, you, you abused, that hurt you, or would hurt you. So, when I looked around by the 19, late 70s and early 80s, 80 million adults had shrunk to 20 million adults. 60 million people had stopped smoking. And now we're seeing an increase uh, in smoking as movie stars and celebrities and those young people wish to imitate and think that they're cool about, and, and, and you know, it makes them special, which is one of the reasons I started smoking, uh, there's an increase. But this was done without any real programs. It was done without patches. It was done without expensive other drugs. It was done without lots and lots of therapy. People put down their cigarettes, and with different degrees of struggle, because psychology plays an enormous role in this, Stop smoking. So that's a myth. Okay? Uh, what else? One of the problems here is that we only see the slice of population. We only get reports in the literature about people who really have a difficulty or make difficulties for themselves with their addiction. We don't see, we don't hear about those individuals. They're not studied. And, uh, People in the millions will change their lives under the pressure of loved ones, under uh, a fright, a medical fright. This happens all the time. You probably know somebody who has done this with their life. So the story of addiction 
is is a false one. Oh, one more. Uh, heroin being a perpetually and immediately addicting drug. Way back in the 1960s, a famous social psychologist by the name of Isidore Chine, who was one of my best best teachers, a man that I admired and revered uh, as a professor, uh, had done with some colleagues a large study of people who used heroin. And what he discovered was people who started used heroin were like people who drank. Some people took it once, hated it, and stopped and never did it again. And some people took it, and like people who drink heavily, climbed into the bottle, or in this case, climbed into the drug culture, and never got out. And then the remainder and the majority either used heroin casually in the same way that most people in the United States drink, or went into bouts of difficulty but either with a program or without it, worked it out that they never had a problem again. So there was, again, with all of these drugs, including heroin, a very wide range of responses. And not this part of the story you're told that if you even sniff this stuff, you go near it, you're hooked. Uh, so much of these stories uh, really seem to me an outgrowth of the story uh, of the Middle Ages where people became possessed by demons. And to me, the, the politicians who use this no longer talk about devils. They talk about drugs as if the drugs were the devils. And it all gets bound up in all kinds of religious mythology, which I really won't discuss here. Now, if I look back on my own so-called addiction and the addiction of so many people uh, that I knew, I, there are the things that really need to be understood, and I want to provide another story. It, it is true that drugs can cause, certain drugs can cause physical dependence. And by the way, that includes psychiatric drugs. Uh, these drugs are potent, and uh, I consider them in the same class as any other drugs that you can get into trouble with. Only these drugs uh, are given a medical backing. They're told that they're medicines, that they're not dangerous, and I'm not going to go, I did a show on this earlier, uh, that, that these drugs are, are really harmless and they're good for you in the same way that at one point the cigarette companies used to tell you that uh, their drugs were good for you. Again, if you, if you have an effect from this drug and you know the full story of their side effects and you wish to take these drugs, uh, you, have, <laughs> you don't have, need my permission, you go ahead and do it. But don't be fooled into thinking that these drugs are any different than heroin or cocaine. Uh, back in 1998, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration of the United States government, studied Ritalin and found that its effects were more powerful than cocaine and the drug was far more addictive, uh, had a more addictive potential than cocaine. Although, again, I'm not sure it's the drug or the culture that supports that drug either as a diet pill uh, or now uh, as, a, as a cure-all for children who are having uh, various problems in school. Okay? Drugs can produce tolerance, it's true. You need more of it to get the same effect, and that can play all kinds of difficult problems. However, most drugs are out of your system in a very short period of time. The nicotine that leaves your system in about 48 hours 
Well, my first 48 hours of not smoking, I was kind of on a high. I was really proud of myself. It was only when I got to the idea that uh, I would never smoke again uh, that I became upset, depressed, and anxious about the fact that I wasn't smoking. It was after four or five days that my association with a cup of coffee uh, and a cigarette in the morning or at a social function, a drink and, and a cigarette. Um, uh, oh, yes, alcohol and cigarettes go together <laughs> like very few things. And the next morning I'd have a hangover and my breath was so bad I could set fire to the wall or my pillow uh, merely by exhaling. So um, there are all these issues involved, and it's not that the drug doesn't have a, a staying effect or produce an effect. But for me, and for most of the people I've worked with, when they become addicted to a drug, or that word addicted, it is because they've made a choice. And the choice is often not conscious. And that's an issue I'm going to have to do a whole show on sometime, that our choices are very often not conscious, but they're choices nonetheless, in which we sort of have a calculus in that the effect of this behavior, doing this, is more important to us than doing something else. Right? Uh, I lied to myself for the first years that I smoked uh, that it, it would cause me health problems 20 years from now. Who could think when you're 15 or 16 or 17 about 20 years from now? Uh, of course, that when my wife became pregnant, I was 26 at the time, and my father, who was a very heavy smoker, had died of heart attack, uh, and died at 40. Uh, at that point, at 26, my whole time span concept and the idea of raising a child into my 40s or 50s uh, changed my view. And at that point, I struggled and successfully gave up the cigarettes. And it was a struggle. Um, what then determines why somebody uses these drugs? Again, it's the choice and the effect of that choice. Now, there are certain personality issues that are involved here, and I've spoken about this before. Most serious psychological problems come from a set of beliefs and the emotions that go with them. And most people I know who have had serious bouts with, with drugs uh, have a, a set of ideas about themselves and the world that uh, make the drugs or whatever the activity uh, uh, is that helps them escape and sedate uh, and even create a social life uh, uh, involved in these, in these so-called addictions. Um, first, they believe they're defective in some way. They're ugly and the ugliest. They're stupid, the stupidest. They shouldn't have been born. They're no good. Um, that, that they're basically defective. And one of the things that literally drives me mad about telling people that they are defective, that their brain is defective, is that it cements this in. And if they give up the drug, it becomes another addiction. For example, AA becomes the addiction. It becomes a lifestyle, a terrified lifestyle. I can't ever stop AA because if I do, I'll fall off the wagon. Is it fall on the wagon? Go back on the wagon? I don't ever remember that one. But anyway, AA becomes that addiction. Okay? And I think people should live their lives without duress 
and make proper choices for their life and not live under the tyranny of, of authoritarian politics that tells them they're defective and are helpless to do their own lives as they wish without outside help. Now, I don't want to live my life without outside help. And, and I think much of the camaraderie in drug programs or Gamblers Anonymous and, and all of these other programs can be a very important asset. But I hope it's not done with this terrible fear uh, that you're defective. The second set of beliefs involves a terror about the world. The world is a crappy, shitty place to live in, uh, and I have to shut myself down because I can't live in it. Okay? Third is anxiety. The world is confusing. And again, so much of anxiety, which is a good, powerful, necessary emotion that tells us, get another story, figure out another way of explaining without lying to yourself, without accepting lies from others, is created by the confusion of the lies that we hear uh, by authority who threaten to punish us if we don't accept belief in that particular story that they're pushing. Next is a feeling of powerlessness and helplessness about life. And finally, hopelessness, the belief that nothing can change, that you can do nothing about it, and the despair that comes along with it. And the people who have abused drugs the most are those who come from backgrounds that have left them fearful, self-loathing, powerless, filled with despair. Economics can produce these feelings. Child abuse can produce these feelings. Living with parents who themselves have solved their life problems or appear to solve their life problems with alcohol, this all can set up a model and a story that says, when you feel these ways, you take the drug or lose yourself totally in some activity uh, that may give pleasure on one hand or reduce pain on the other. And of the two, by the way, it is people who escape pain, psychological pain, uh, rather than people who seek pleasure in something who usually get uh, the most problematic with their, with their uh, activity, whether, what we call the addiction. There is a social pressure. People, I remember when people started smoking marijuana. The myth was, you were cool if you smoked, and you only hung around with people who you smoked with. And people who didn't smoke, they were the ones who had the defect. It's wonderful how people can create a mythology and a story that makes them superior for the very thing that others tell them makes them inferior. But if we approach this problem, these problems, and they are problems, if we approach them, in a way that says we're making a moral judgment about somebody and then pretending it's a medical issue. We're saying someone is morally defective. And we stop saying this and say, what is the experience you get from that drug? When you feel safe and you could look at yourself, how old do you feel when you start uh, uh, take a drug? Do you feel any older than when you started? I remember a young couple who came to me who met in high school and was stoned all the way through high school into college. Well, they didn't go to college. And then the young lady in this relationship became pregnant. And she stopped, cold turkey, threw away the marijuana, her cigarettes, didn't take another drink, 
uh, all through her pregnancy because that baby was now more important to her than any drug that she could take. And her young man continued to smoke, and, and they drifted apart. They found that the only basis of their relationship was the drug. It had become their culture. It had become their mutual escape from their personal problems. It had shut everything down. And one day she looked at me and she said, you know, I have the same skills I have now as an adult when I went to uh, junior high school, which was when I started smoking. I don't know how to date. I don't know how to do a checkbook. My education has been completely lost. And with the support of her family, this young woman made the choice to go back to school and to begin to grow. And her young man, whom she cared for, or thought she cared for, because that becomes a funny problem, uh, he went back into the drug culture. He went back to the marijuana, and that was his life, and had nothing to do with the baby when the baby was born. And it was rather sad to him, but not because he was diseased, but because for whatever the demons that were in him that he wouldn't face and he needed to face. And I would have hoped he would have faced, as she faced hers, uh, there was no growth to take place. And even that's a judgment, growth. Uh, but it is my value that being on drugs this way and living your life this way uh, is a stinky way to live, not a pathological way. It's just crappy. It doesn't have the kind of rich, meaningful uh, uh, rewards that good sex has, that going to, to, to uh, praying to God has, if you, if you believe, uh, that good food and exercise and, and, and having your mind turned on by a good book or a good lecture in school. Uh, again, I'm talking personally. These were my joys, and there was no way I would have given them up. But the people who do give these things up either find no satisfaction in them uh, or believe that they're not capable of doing these things and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and hiding from those emotions and hiding from the activities, the challenges of life uh, becomes, uh, 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 their adaptation becomes uh, through the use of drugs or some kind of activity that becomes obsessional and takes over and allows them to take over their lives. So, that is the story I would tell you today. Uh, I think it's a much more hopeful story. I'm not against AA or Gamblers Anonymous or any drug program, except to the degree that they foster this story that says you are really helpless and it is really hopeless for you ever to change your relationship to a drug or to alcohol or to gambling from one of permanent obsession and uh, uh, or abstinence rather than a choice you make based upon how you think and feel about yourself and your life at any given moment in that life. So uh, that is the story for today. And uh, whoever is listening and whoever will listen, I thank you. Uh, I will try to uh, routinize the time I am on the air. I have some other stories that I wish to communicate with you. Uh, at the end of September, I will be scheduling a, an interview with one of my heroes, Dr. Thomas Zoss. Uh, 
uh, MD, the most hated psychiatrist probably in the world, except for those who revere him and his courage, uh, who wrote the book The Myth of Mental Illness and about 30 other books about the abuses of uh, psychiatry and the psychology and mental health uh, uh, industry that went along with psychiatry in the story that it tells. Uh, I will ask Dr. Lou Wynn to join us. He's already agreed. And we will have this conversation for about an hour, and I hope that uh, the word will get out and that people will uh, uh, enjoy and uh, be enriched by Dr. Zas's wisdom. Uh, 85 years old, and he still tours all over the world lecturing and being given awards, except by the field uh, that uh, uh, he studied, where he is vilified, called schizophrenic, <laughs> called all kinds of names, uh, and attacked uh, roundly, vigorously, and I believe unfairly. Okay? Take care, and goodbye.